Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. Welcome to Deep Cuts, a monthly bonus episode where we take a closer look at a topic that we've covered in the past few weeks. This month, we bring you a tale of intrigue from the history of evolutionary studies. The evolution of evolutionary studies, one could say. The rise and the fall of the Piltdown Man, one of the most devious archaeological hoaxes of the 20th century. Allow me to set the scene. Please. On December 18th, 1912, a huge media storm was sparked by the announcement that the, quote, missing link between ape and man had been found in a gravel bed outside the quiet Sussex village of Piltdown. Newspapers ran headlines like, in the Manchester Guardian, remarkable find in Sussex. In the London Times, first evidence of a new human type. In the New York Times, paleolithic skull is missing link. And then subheading, Far older than cavemen. Great. Right? The finds, a fragmented skull specifically, were hailed as the most important archaeological discovery ever made. The skull was presented to the Royal Geological Society by their discoverer, Charles Dawson. J. Charles Dawson was born on July 11th, 1864, in Lancashire, to a prosperous family that had gotten their wealth in the cotton spinning industry. From his childhood, he had a keen interest in the natural world and especially in fossil hunting. He amassed quite the collection of animal and plant fossils in his youth, and in his early 20s, he donated them to the British Museum of Natural History. For this, oh, he was named... rich boy here. <laughs> For this, he was named an honorary collector and made an honorary member of the Geological Society. On February 14, 1912, in an area near his hometown, Dawson noticed some peculiarities in a gravel bed, basically a, a limestone quarry, that contained bits of bone. Reports of this initial find are confusing, as an entry in Dawson's journal and his own later claims to the press suggest that he had first been handed a fragment of cranium by a workman at the gravel quarry four years before, in 1908. Also, just a note, because I don't even know, but in one report, Dawson claimed that a workman claimed that he had thought the skull pieces were, quote, bits of a fossilized coconut, so he'd broken them apart with his pickaxe and then, like, gone on with his day, I guess. Then then realized that a fossilized coconut isn't a thing and was like, well, that was silly. And just like... And then, oh, I guess I better end it to this toff who knows what he's talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he sounded like. Whatever the exact circumstances of the fossil's discovery, Dawson and a colleague, Arthur Smith Woodward, launched a formal excavation, the results of which were presented to the Geological Society. And so now we're back where we started. Was this colleague a geological colleague or a cotton spinning colleague? Uh, no, this was a naturalist colleague. He was cool, 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 cool. An antiquarian. Oh, great. Let me tell you about that antiquary. Mm -mm. Um, so. <laughs> Fossil, so Dawson and Smith Woodward claimed that, uh, is it Woodard? Oh, I don't know. 
Brit- uh, Let's say Woodward. People. Woodward claimed to have discovered several No, because then of- Edward would be Eddard. Say it's hey, Woodward. I don't know. I don't, I don't, uh, uh. okay. Dawson and Smith Woodward claim to have discovered several pieces of a human-like skull, an ape-like mandible, some worn molar teeth, stone tools, and fossilized animals. No fossilized coconuts. Excavations over the following two years by the team revealed that canine teeth that were, so like not dog teeth. No, no, no. The, the canine teeth um, of this. Like canine incisors. Yep, right? yep, yep, yep. Well, yeah, the canines, canines aren't incisors. That the were... ones next to your incisors. God. I'm pointing. You can't see me. Teeth that were somewhere <laughs> in between a human's and an ape's in size. Based on the bone's color, usually described as a chocolatey brown, mm. and the fossilized animals surrounding them, Dawson and Smith Woodward speculated that the individual lived some 500,000 years ago. That's a the long UK time. The UK human. Yep. The UK human evolution research community enthusiastically embraced Eoanthropus Jossoni, better known as Piltdown Man. Its large brain case and ape-like jaw and teeth were exactly what these scientists expected to find from a, quote, missing link, end quote. Yep. And so the name Eoanthropus Dawsoni, you know, the Dawsoni refers to Dawson, and it's mm-hmm. Dawson's Dawn Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gross. In the early 20th century, the average member of the public didn't often have access to scholarly publications, never mind actual specimens. This was true for the Piltdown remains, which the public met through art and museum exhibits. Uh, Every newspaper article that mentioned the fossil had some sort of artistic rendering of varying accuracy. The most popular public face of Piltdown was a reconstruction of the fossil by museum conservator M.A. Ruto. It's a bust of what Ruto imagined Piltdown would look like, coyly looking up as he shapes some sort of implement that he's holding under one arm. The British people loved their new old ancestor. Yep, they loved him. And, and I so, bet I know why. <laughs> so here's why the Piltdown man was super important specifically to British people. Because he was so white? 19... <laughs> Pretty much. So in 1925... Raymond Dart found the Tong skull, a fossil in South Africa that he believed was the earliest human ancestor, which we now know as Australopithecus. So we talked about this way back in episode two, but few people accepted his find. It didn't fit in with Piltdown, for one thing. It had a small brain, but a human-like jaw. And if you remember from five minutes ago, Piltdown had a large brain case and an ape-like jaw. But most of all, it came from Africa, and many European scientists prefer to have England, or at least Europe, be the cradle of humanity. I don't know if we need to note, but it's worth noting here that Raymond Dart was ultimately proved correct. Um, so the, the expectation, <laughs> the expectations of white European scientists at that time were that man originated in Europe, and our ancient ancestors had big brains because... Obviously, humans have always been a superior animal. Um, The famous Heidelberg jaw of Homo heidelbergensis had been found in 1907, prior to either Piltdown or the Tong child, and was one of the earliest human ancestors recovered from Europe. So there were similarities between Heidelbergensis and Piltdown. Heidelberg man comprised a single, robust, ape-like jaw with no prominent chin and all its teeth, at least on the right side. There were a few missing teeth on the left. These teeth were (laughs) human by time. These teeth were human-like in appearance, 
So it's interesting that Piltdown had such definitively ape-ish teeth, reinforcing the idea that it was supposed to be earlier than Heidelbergensis. The Heidelberg specimen was also found in a sandy, gravelly outcrop, and Dawson's journal writings make it clear that at some point prior to 1912, although we don't know exactly when, he had examined the Heidelberg specimen. So he knew what it looked like. Hey. So, like, duh, it was found in a gravelly outcrop because limestone is what things are are fossilized in, right? Am I correct that something sedimentary, like limestone, mm-hmm. is where you would get fossils? Sedimentary, my dear Watson. Yep. I took rocks for jacks. Like, Good job. Duh, duh okay. old-timey guys. Duh. Okay. okay. So... We have this, uh, found in, in 1907, we have this German oldest ancestor in Europe, but the British naturalists specifically wanted a British missing link because it would show that Britain was better than everyone, blah, blah, blah. France and Germany had all these Neanderthal fossils and stone tools, and in comparison, very little had been recovered from Britain at that point, despite all the naturalists and geologists and antiquarians noodling around the countryside. So here's a quote from a book by Miles Russell. To make matters worse, what meager remains of the period had been recorded from British context provided some French paleontologists with a rather derogatory term for their English counterparts, chasseurs de cailloux, or pebble hunters. That is so French. Uh, Petty. Le burn. And now, the plot thickens. Act two, doubts. Even as early as the initial announcement of the Piltdown finds, some scientists expressed skepticism about it. Duh. Some were concerned that the parts of the skull that had been found were conveniently missing major diagnostic features, the the ones that could pinpoint what species it was. Others were unsure that the, the gravel beds where the skull had been found actually dated as far back as Dawson claimed. Two immediate issues were raised by prominent anatomists Arthur Keith and Grafton Elliot Smith. Elliot Smith. Not that one. Oh, okay. As soon as the skull was unveiled. First, they were concerned with the association between the skull and the jaw, fraternizing. They weren't convinced (laughs) that all the pieces found belonged to the same species, let alone the same individual. Secondly, they thought that maybe the Piltdown skull was a lot younger than Dawson claimed, from the Holocene era. This one. This one. This one. Uh, Which would be weird if the surrounding gravels really did date to the Pleistocene. The prior one. Despite these detractors... The Piltdown specimen was firmly ensconced in the record of paleofossils until fluorine dating came along and blew mm-hmm. it all wide open. The hoax, and indeed it was a hoax, came to light in 1953 when scientists at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom, using the then-new technique of fluorine dating, which relies on the fact that older bones absorb more fluoride from groundwater over time, revealed that Piltdown man's bones were not all the same age. Whoops. Uh-oh. Further analysis revealed they were, in fact, an amalgam of carefully carved and stained human and ape bones. So it's so. not a Claude Holland situation. It's not. No. It's Darn. a straight up, straight up monkey shines. Literal monkey shines. I, yep. Yep. That was on purpose. Thank you. Apes aren't monkeys. Shut up. But. Okay. The potential perpetrators of the hoax included Dawson and Smith Woodward, of course, but also Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French Jesuit priest who assisted the excavation, and Martin Hinton, a volunteer who worked with Smith Woodward, among others. Even Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was considered, because why not? 
Isabel de Groot, a paleoanthropologist at Liverpool John Moores University in the United Kingdom, began looking into the question in 2009, applying modern scanning technology and DNA analysis to the original materials. So she and colleagues compared CT scans of the mandible and teeth to known ape specimens and concluded that all of the pieces originated from an orangutan. And then when they DNA sequenced the teeth, it suggested that they all came from the same orangutan, which de Groot suspects that the forger or forgers may have obtained from a curiosity shop. The teeth had been filed down to create wear patterns that would be expected from something like a human diet rather than uh, an herbivorous orangutan diet, although some orangutans will eat meat occasionally. Like at parties? Mm-hmm. When someone else yeah. is paying? Oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're vegan until they've had a couple drinks. The human bones because it got those two, uh, which were already recognized to be from at least two individuals, revealed fewer secrets. Although these bones are unusually thick, a fact initially used to argue for their prehistoric origin, DeGroote says that they aren't outside the range of normal human variation. Unfortunately, the researchers were unable to extract DNA from the bones and radiocarbon dating failed. Um, examining the CT scans, DeGruta also noticed a strange off-white putty on the surface of every, virtually every bone. The putty had been painted over and stained, and in some cases was used to fill in cracks and gaps that the forger accidentally created. Inside the crania and the teeth, she found tiny pebbles stuffed inside hollow chambers sealed over with the same putty. DeGruta thinks that the hoaxer used these pebbles to weigh down the bones, as fossilized bones are noticeably heavier than recent bones. Very clever. Taken together, the consistency of technique used across all the Piltdown Man fragments suggests that a single person pulled off the hoax. Uh, And the team reported about that in... um, the Royal Society's Open Science Journal. And DeGruta says, quote, throughout the whole assemblage, there's evidence of one hand, one maker, one signature. Right. Which hand was that? (laughs) So it was most likely Charles Dawson, who died just about 100 years ago. Um, So he regularly attended meetings of geologists and anthropologists. He was an inveterate fossil hunter. He had access to collections and the knowledge of what prehistoric finds should look like. He also had a habit of small-time forgery, with several other of his less celebrated findings later being shown to be fakes. More than anything, he was desperate for acceptance and recognition within the UK scientific community, um, says De Groot in the same Um, article in uh, Open Science. His letters reveal his persistent but ultimately fruitless attempts to join the Royal Society. So it now appears, says geologist Stephen Donovan of the Naturalis Biodiversity Institute in Leiden, that the chemical data support the abundant circumstantial evidence that Dawson was the brains behind the hoax. Dawson was able to fool the experts of the day by employing the same trick used by successful con artists since time immemorial. We know exactly when that is. He showed them what they wanted to see. DeGruta says, Dawson really played a very clever card. With the findings coming out of Germany and Britain wanting to be at the forefront of science, there was this sense that we must have these fossils in Britain as well. Miles Russell, an archaeologist in Bournemouth in the UK, who wrote the book The Piltdown Man Hoax, Case Closed in 2012, says the study adds scientific certainty to his and others' conclusions that Dawson alone committed the hoax. Having an accomplice in this would have been extremely dangerous, opening the forger up to potential blackmail 
or worse, exposure and ridicule, he said. The new report confirms the likelihood that the forger, who we can no longer doubt was Dawson, acted alone. Um, so DeGroote says that the other prime suspect for the Piltdown forgery, Smith Woodward, was merely an unwitting participant in Dawson's gamble for fame. He did help with the excavation, but he always let Dawson sort of take charge. And so he was kind of the, the stooge here. Well, the focus on Charles Dawson as the main forger is supported by the accumulation of evidence regarding other archaeological hoaxes that he perpetrated in the decade or two before the Piltdown discovery, uh, which may have something may have something in it that gives us an idea why he wasn't accepted by the scientific community. Yeah, um, maybe. Miles Russell of Burnmouth um, analyzed Dawson's antiquarian collection and determined that at least 38 of his specimens were fakes. Yup. Um, Dawson's calculated chicanery underscores why studying Piltdown Man is still important to modern science. And this is an, an idea that DeGruta and I share. Um, <laughs> although such a brazen hoax is unlikely to occur again in physical anthropology because of the sophistication of modern analytical techniques, um, this is DeGruta speaking, uh, there's still a danger of being too quick to accept interpretations that adhere to what scientists expect to find. Um, and that is especially true when anthropologists hoard their collections, um, which happens a whole lot. Yep. Um, and usually, so, okay, so I'll get back to that. Um, and to, to round out um, DeGruta's thoughts, she says, quote, Piltdown Man sets a good example of the need for us to take a step back and look at the evidence for what it is and not for whether it conforms to our preconceived ideas. And this is something here, here. that is... Yeah. And so what happens a lot with with teams is that they keep they keep everything because somebody's going to publish it eventually, but they want to be the one to publish it. And then that person like ages or picks up some other project or yeah, life happens, dies and um, or sometimes it stops happening and then nobody's published it. Um and and then or you have the case where they just aren't publishing it. But every time somebody uh, presents something at a meeting, they kind of get to put their hand up and be like, well, actually, we have some stuff from this site that contravenes what you just said. And it's like, well, maybe well, then if put you it out there, literally sir. anyone. Yeah. And so they only I'm thinking of one site in particular where they only would publish things in response to other other things to, oh, like, to other people's work. Yeah, that's real, not cool. real, real dirty, dirty play. And so that kind of gets into this idea of how not only what DeGruta told us that there's this danger in in uh, confirmation bias, but also we still don't seem to be super ethical as a discipline in terms of like our motivations, but not everyone, not all yeah. anthropologists, all members of the community have uh, per, like have the best of intentions right. and, and are interested this... in furthering knowledge. Right. And so there's also this sort of crippling unwillingness for researchers and also museums to portray themselves or the overall whatever discipline they showcase to portray that as fallible to say like oh we were wrong if you go often to museums that used to have a piltdown man specimen or cast in their exhibit oftentimes they've hidden it away do you think that that accomplishes the right 
thing? Like, is it better to expunge it? Is it better to have it on display as a cautionary tale? How do we deal with that? I think that it should be displayed, possibly not in the same. I mean, I take tons of issue with how things are selected for their given cases that you find them in. So if this is like a designated exhibition, like, no, I think it should be displayed no matter what. I think it should be displayed with them owning up to it because if nothing else, because of the, the racism that underscored the entire project. Yeah. Like this guy, this guy made a fake thing that he knew they would eat up and he knew they would eat it up because they were racist. Because they they couldn't have man originating in Africa. Yeah. And I think that um, I don't think that that attitude has gone away, especially if we're dealing with public facing institutions who are going there to learn something. And as we've like as I think people are learning as they listen to the dirt, archaeology has, and, and like anthropology itself, has a lot, a lot it can teach you about your contemporary, like everyday life. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I think that this is an excellent entry point into where else might we be not noticing the fallibility of scientific practice? Where else right. might we be? Um, overlooking confirmation bias in research. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a, a really important uh, important thing to say. If nothing else, to show, like, we got got. Yep. But that's um, not something to be... I mean, you know, it's egg on your face, whatever. It's not necessarily something to be ashamed of. It was a very... The racism is something to be ashamed of. But, like, it was a really clever, well-done hoax that was only exposed later when new testing methods came out so yeah you know it's it's not something that the museum should hesitate to show because it it seems like they're doing something wrong they are by by showing the whole story by showing the whole progress progression of the hoax and its discovery and then its exposure and all of that they are completing the story it's not yeah that's that's the museum's job well, and it's a much more productive exercise to do that and then to like hide it away when they have when many, many institutions and many museums the world over have no problem putting things on display and parts of people on display and images of people on display from communities that have no interest in being on display and they keep them there until until someone sues them. Yeah. And then they, they put up a sign that's like, oh, these aren't on display because uh, First Nations community wrote us a letter and was like, hello, people who claim to know something about us. Did you know that this is deeply disrespectful? And so it's just I don't understand why there's like more deference and respect for something that isn't real than and, and like let's take this off off display than something that is very real and is harming people by being on display. Right. If we're going to talk about things that shouldn't be on display. Yep. Um, and but, indeed we will in one of our <laughs> very, very soon forthcoming main feed episodes. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that this is, I, I think that things like hoaxes and forgeries are really interesting and like it's it's something that people should be learning about. Like if you're not going to put it in your human evolution wing, put it in an exhibit about fakes. 
I would love that so much. I would be there in a heartbeat. Yeah, because like- also like it's like what you were excited about where like the the little pebbles that are put in that that paste to yeah, weigh yeah, it cool down. Detail. Like it's really clever. And like when we talked about um the Israeli guy oh, with the yeah, um, the James Ossuary. Yeah, like when we talked about like was every, James Ossuary. <laughs> and when we talk about like that guy who has had several forgeries and right. like knows really talented people and has hired talented people, you know, people use their their knowledge for good and for evil. And it's something that we should talk about. Yeah, and museums as and museums educational institutions have the perfect platform for yeah. doing that. You know, I've always thought that I kind of want to try and forge something, not to to get money for it, but just like to see if I could do it. I guess it yeah. it falls under the category of like replicative experimental archaeology. <laughs> like I can call it that. Well, yeah. I guess it would only be a forgery if I tried to sell it. Anyway, thank you everyone for all your continued support. And we will be back with you soon with our usual weekly show and more of the monthly content you love so much. Thanks everyone. We love you. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.